This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, this is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams. You have heard of me, and if you haven't heard of me, you better read the New York Post. I'm in it every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And right now, I just feel like mumbling. I just want to tell you some things. First of all, of course, may God bless Her Majesty for eternity. But last year, the Queen was finally enthroned in Madame Tussauds' waxworks. Her royal likeness took one year to create, I know because I asked. Invites for her Platinum Jubilee went out this year's May. In July, Her Majesty's decree to save Buckingham's grass sidelined Elton John. He was coming for a requested visit and it was to be over her grass, which is where his car was supposed to come. She said, no, 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 we cannot have his normal arrival. He had to show up in a golf cart, and he did. He also wore more diamonds than she did. Her Majesty's favorite sip was Dubonnet. Her favorite dessert was mint chocolate ice cream. Her favorite grandchild Prince Edward's little girl. Known trait for Her Majesty, she was thrifty. No unnecessary lights remained on in Buckingham. An eternity ago, in a civilization long gone, comedian Bob Hope told a young reporter, that was me, about the fun of being with Her Majesty. Fun, I said. I was only a kid. Fun? What can you possibly mean, fun, about the Queen of England? Said Bob Hope. I have been with Queen Elizabeth many times. The Queen would walk through Buckingham's stiff official halls with me. She would look up at the wall and pointing to severe-looking, stern, unsmiling portraits lining the walls, she would look at the royal ancestors and make a little fun. Once, when I was there with my wife, she put on a thick Dutch accent. She was great fun, he said. Great fun? Her Majesty the Queen? I reported this in a magazine. I doubt Her Majesty had a subscription, but Bob Hope never complained nor did he request correction. I was presented to Her Majesty twice in one garden party. A starched equerry in formal cutaway gray suit stood alongside. The signal was that omnipresent black pocketbook hanging from her wrist. A tiresome guest who might be taking up too much time, the handbag then shifted to the other wrist. That was the ramrod straight equerry signal to move Her Majesty along. A second visit was with my friend, BBC's public relations executive, Miss Freddie Hancock. She was being honored in a Buckingham ballroom. No guests came close. We guests shook her hand, but that was it. She wore her usual gloves. Me, 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 Markle, the divorced show business duchess daughter-in-law, 
and her high IQ husband being honored in a Buckingham ballroom. We don't know what's going to be with her. Her high IQ husband, Prince Empty, have done book two, Zapping the Royals. It's been pushed back for a little bit, but publication is momentary. Congratulations on their timing. And the Irish author, actor Malachi McCourt, age 90, zipping around in his motorized wheelchair, said, I did it. I did it. I have outlived the queen. While we're on royalty, Lady Henrietta Spencer Churchill, daughter of the 11th Duke of Marlborough, she lives in a 1705 palace. It's England's largest. I'm sure it's not larger than Buckingham, but they say it is England's largest palace. Sir Winston Churchill's birthplace. So, I mean, shopping for a studio in Astoria, she's not. But this is her lady's decision to try to get people to come to visit. She is into interior design, also into collecting a few quid. So, October 26th, Lady Henrietta Spencer Churchill will speak at Huntsville, Alabama's Museum of Art, wherever the hell Huntsville, Alabama is. Cocktails is 5.30, talk is 6.30, dinner is 7.30, fundraiser is 8.30, and if you go, lots of luck. I would like to now say a word about a couple who are on this station. Monday to Friday, 6 to 9 a.m., it's Bernie and Sid on WABC Radio. I am also on WABC Radio. But Bernie and Sid are WABC's top-rated show. This, of course, upsets me. Smart-ass Sid, Bernie is Bernard McGurk. Started in radio in 1998. They were fired. They were hired. They were for sure wired. He has just done a book, Sid, titled modestly, Sid Rosenberg's Sidisons United. The publisher is Post Hill Press, which absolutely nobody has ever heard of, including me. On the cover, Chaz Palminteri, a friend, writes... Every person is born with a filter between their brain and their mouth. Sid Rosenberg was born without one. This is supposed to be a joke. Sid then said to me, You know, my alarm rings 3.15 every morning, but I'm up before. My body is conditioned. I shower. I coffee. I'm in the car with my driver 4 a.m. A five-minute break at 7.25. I stuff in a bagel with cheese. Weeknights, I read, I watch TV, sports, I only socialize weekends. And he has a mouth like, ugh, if not for me, I replaced Geraldo. And Joe Biden's a first-class schmuck. Now, I'm not sure on radio I'm allowed to say that word, but I have just said it. Joe Biden's a first-class schmuck. I agree. 
Jerry Seinfeld, he said, cut my part out of his movie. He put me in the movie. He cut me out. And he says, Tiger Woods, he was a nice guy. He was quiet, but he wasn't really a jerk. A new saga is signaling other things like checks. They are stealing envelopes. They are containing checks that credit companies, that credit taxing authorities. So let's not be humming, happy days are here again. I'm telling you, pay attention. Another thing, ladies are getting back at you. Avril Lavigne says, I throw punches at men. You got to scare guys away. You got to show them who's boss. Callista Flockhart says, I am into kickboxing. I love to punch. Soleil Moon Fry, I won't make the Golden Globes, but I love boxing and hitting guys. Mira Sorvino, working in a ring's great. I'm so muscled that my hips look narrower. And Gina Gershon, my L.A. gym trainer suggested I spar with Bob Dylan, who popped me a hard right to the nose. I threw a haymaker to his jaw. He was lying flat on the mat, and he said, Just what I need, a good woman to kick my butt now and then. And Ralph Macchio, I once did a turn with Hillary Swank. She has strength and serious fighting skills. I'd go down with her first punch to my jaw. You got to watch these ladies today. They don't take anything. And Dad Muhammad Ali's advice to his daughter Layla's pro career in the ring, the champ said, run. Get away with this. Don't do this. Okay, I now have to take a break. Then I shall come back and be more brilliant. Well, at least I'll try. I'll be back in a second. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Scott Bayo's just done a one-man show. It's called How Did I Get Here? What's a one-man show? What are you talking about? What did you do? I talk about my life and my career, how I got to, how I got here, how it all happened for me, the people that impacted my life and made my life go left or right or up or down, um, you know, all the sort of random things that happened uh, and storytelling, uh, funny things that happened and uh, videos and stills and Q&A. And, and really what this is, Cindy, really what this is, and I, I don't want to give you the whole spiel, is, you know, I've been so lucky to have been on television for almost 45 years, and I did this to thank people that have watched my stuff since the mid-'70s till like, 2016. So that's what it is. I want to say thank you to those folks, and that's what the show is all about. Okay, but one guy standing on a stage... How do you yeah. keep people entertained with one guy? I mean, you're wonderful, you're charming, you're adorable, you're not exactly stunning. So what are we supposed to do here? Just <laughs> <laughs> so tell thank me. You for, thank you for keeping it real. 
What are we going to do? We're going to listen to you for 90 minutes? What? Yes. It's, it's storytelling. It's photos. It's old photos. It's all that kind of stuff. It's how anything happens for anybody, Cindy. How did you end up where you are? What yeah. were the steps that took you there? Who were the people that helped you there? And all, and had got you there. You know, I watching your document doc, documentary of yours, I was riveted. You know, it's interesting stuff. And I think people enjoy show business stories. I think they enjoy the intrigue of how it happens for some people. You know, I've been very successful. God has been good to me. I'm very lucky. And I wanted to share these stories with people. Okay. How did you start? Where did you come from? From Brooklyn. Then how did you get from Brooklyn to a stage? I started doing commercials when I was about nine. And then I went and read for a movie called Bugsy Malone when I was about 13. That was a, 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 a musical gangster film with kids directed by the late Alan Parker. And got the lead in that movie. And then Gary Marshall of Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mark and Mindy. Um, pretty woman and on and on saw me in that movie and he brought me out to, to Hollywood. But you've been on television for a very long time. How did, yeah. how did that happen, honey? Well, from Gary, Gary put me, Gary was the creator of happy days and he wanted to add a character to happy days. And, uh, he, he brought me out and I did, I worked for him for 10 years and then right into another series after that called Charles in charge. And then right into another series after that, and another series after that, and then uh, the movies, and then another series that I started directing, and that's pretty much it. And I find I find that listen, I find anybody's life story interesting. So um, that that intrigued me. Okay, he, for people who don't know how television actually works, tell us how a series unfolds. I mean, are you given a script weeks? in advance? Do you have to memorize every page? Do they give you words in your ear? How does a TV series work? Well, there's two different, now there's a bunch of different series, but, but there's situation comedy, which is shot like a stage play. And then there is episodic television, which would be shows like um, ER, which are uh, one hour shows, sitcoms a half hour. Um, and, and, and episodic shows in one hour. One hour shows shoot 15 hours a day. Half hour sitcoms shoot one day a week in front of an audience for a couple of hours and you rehearse maybe four or five days, four, four or five hours a day prior to that. But you sometimes get the script a week before. Sometimes you get it the day before. Sometimes you get it the day of. And you just have to get up there and, you know, there's 40 pages of dialogue on a sitcom, and you've got to know it. There's, 40, you know, 40 pages? Yeah. And you're supposed to learn it overnight? You, you learn it on the fly sometimes. So what happens if you cannot or if you forget something? How does, the, how does that work? You, you stop and you laugh about it. The audience laughs about it. And you make a couple of jokes about yourself or the scene or whatever, and you try it again. Does and anybody talk to you in your ear? No, 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 no. I've never heard of that. I know some people that will write stuff down in, that, that the cameras can't see in different parts of the set. Yeah. They can't remember a particular line. Or if they're, getting, they're struggling with something, they'll write it down. 
and they'll put it inside a book that they're reading or, you know, under under an ashtray and they'll lift the ashtray or something like that. That's how a lot of some people do that. Have that you ever screwed up? Have never, you ever screwed you know, of up? Of course. Of course. But, that, that you know, the least of my concerns is memorization. I, I can... At this point, and you know, from for most of my career, and I'm not I'm not bragging. I'm just I can look at a script once and pretty much know it. Oh my! Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Have you ever made a mistake on air? Have you ever made an embarrassing mistake or something on air? On not live, uh, but I've made plenty of grooves falling down uh, in sets <laughs> and uh, yeah. But but also within that, Cindy, you know, I what I really enjoy doing is. Um, you know, a sitcom, like I said, is shot like you know, there's four cameras and it's and it's and it's a stage play that you shoot. So, you know, I do it. I've been doing it my whole life. So I know when a camera's on me and not on me. And when I know it's not on me, there's other things that I can do to actors to play with them, to mess with them. Yeah, and I do it all. I do it all the time. What about going back to your high school, your old high school to do your show? What did that feel like? You know, we, we before the show, I, the, the guy who's the head of the school was, was an old classmate of mine. Oh. And, yeah, uh, coincidentally, um, a great guy named uh, uh, Bobby Alisi. It's called Zavarian High School. It's on Shore Road and 72nd Street in Brooklyn. And it was, uh, a lot of it has changed. It was kind of surreal. Um, I remember a lot of stuff. I, I only went there for maybe a year that I was out you know, working on television and movies. But I, I remember so much of it and certain people that were there and certain friends. And, um, you know, some of them were there, which made it really kind of exciting and fun. And it's it's a surreal moment. It's, you know, I, what was I, 16? Oh, wow. When was, yeah. When I was when I 15, 15 when I left. So it's 47 years ago. <laughs> oh, did you go back to your old home in Brooklyn? Okay, so I lived in two places here. I lived around the block from my high school when I, up until I was about five years old. And I went to that house the day before I did the show. Yeah. And it looked exactly the same, like other than the cars <laughs> being different. It looked exactly the same. And that was actually um, quite, uh, it's, it's pretty emotional. And I've been to my house that was on 80th Street and 10th Avenue uh, a couple of times, and that's always fun to do because some of the people that I grew up with are still there. Alan Dershowitz once said that his association with Trump led him to being ostracized by his social circles. Did right. you feel the same way about your political views affecting the way you're treated in Hollywood? So, you know, it's so funny. I notice the difference in the people. I forget the difference in the people when I come here. You know, people walk right by it. As, you know, they, there's very few people say thank you. They say, you know, okay, thank you, get out. You know, go goodbye. And nobody really. And in L.A., it's still kind of, well, you know, L.A. sucks too. Anyway, um, so um, yes, to answer your question about uh, President Trump, sure, I was I was canceled, and I knew I would be. Um, in fact, I had I um, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, there was a friend of mine who I do some work with. We had an idea for a show, and he called up this woman named Dawn Soleil over at ABC, and he and he said, "Listen, I he emailed her. 
He said, I have the show I do with Scott Baio, you know, blah, blah, blah. She writes back in an email, I don't want anything to do with Scott Trump Baio. Oh. And I went, wow. All right. Yeah. So and and people. um, Yeah. People are crazy. People are absolutely crazy. And, you know, Cindy, I'll tell you what. I, I get, I understand why they might dislike him. I get it. He's brash and he's bold and he's, you know, loud and he says funny stuff and he messes with people and they don't think that's very presidential. I understand that. But honestly, I, 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 and people think that he puts some spell over, you know, his supporters and me. And I say to people, you know, I've been thinking that way my whole life. I, I wanted things that he was doing. I wanted a border wall. I wanted low taxes. I wanted security. I wanted all that. I didn't care who the messenger was. You guys got all bent out of shape about the man. And I didn't care. I, I mean, I, I thought he was the right guy. But people get crazy about him because between, between you and I and whoever is listening, I'm a very conservative guy. But... I don't care what anybody's life is. I really don't. If you want to be any one of the letters, great. I'll hang out with you. We'll be friends. I don't have to agree with your lifestyle, but I'll give you a hug and a kiss, and I'll see you later and talk soon and whatever. I'm not phobic of anything. And and we've been branded. I've been branded with that, and the Republicans have been branded with that. And it's really, it's really, we don't see, see, I don't see color. I just see people. And that's the way I've been my whole life. I, I, you know, either you're a good person or you're not. And that's how I see people. Actually, I agree with absolutely every single syllable that has come out of your mouth. I understand you. what you're saying. I don't Thank understand you. what's happened to my country. I don't understand what's happened to my politics. I don't understand what's happened to the imbecile that's in Washington. I don't understand any of it. And I tend to agree with you. And now everybody's going to be mad at me, too. But that's the way it is. That's exactly mm-hmm. the way it is. Yeah, Tell I'm me. Very, I'm a, go ahead. I'm sorry. You can continue. I was about to ask you about your relationship with Henry Winkler and all the others that you worked with. Are you still mm-hmm. friendly with them? Yes. Uh, I am. I am. Henry and I disagree um, completely about a lot of stuff, but... He is a, a, a very classy man, and he's, he was asked about my politics in a, a, on a television show, and he said, I, dis- I disagree with Scott very, very much, but I love him. And what else, what, what else do I need to hear? I love him for saying that. That's the way it should be. Oh, that's great. And, yeah, and that's who he is, and, and, and we've lost that. You know, we've lost that. Um, feeling where I like this guy, so you hate me. Okay. Actually, I I agree with absolutely every single thing you said. I'm not so sure. I think you're a great actor, but you're a great talker. <laughs> okay. Jill, will you ever move back to New York? Enough already with Los Angeles. Are you going to move back to New York? Ever? I am not. I'm probably. I will. I will very soon end up in Florida. Oh please. Oh please. Every right. old Jew goes back to Florida. Everybody who's over the age no. of 32 is back in Florida. Why are you doing that? 
Well, for, there's, there's uh, a couple of reasons. I like the weather there. Um, I also, my wife and I, we have a 14-year-old daughter who is a uh, very serious golfer. And she goes to a very serious golf academy there uh, to train. So that's, you know, my life at this point is about my kid. So whatever I can do to help her uh, achieve what she wants, then, then my job is done. Actually, I have really loved talking to you. And if you ever come to New York City, I will buy you dinner. Okay? Well, you absolutely love it that. Was, it was lovely to have you, Scott. Thank you very much. Then they'd be good. God bless. Okay, honey. Thanks. Bye. Bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm now going to speak to my longtime forever friend, Katie Couric. She has a new book out called Going There. However, it gets truncated. She was in a car. She was going through a tunnel, and half of the interview gets killed. But for as long as she's on there, she's adorable. So listen to her. So I am now having the privilege of speaking to my old friend, Katie Couric. She has a book out there called Going There, and it's put out by Little Brown. So tell me, how physically did you write the book? I mean, how do you write a book? How? Well, Cindy, first of all, hi. And secondly, um, I wrote it primarily on my iPad. And I worked with a wonderful collaborator named Lucy Kalen, who is awesome, and an incredible researcher named Adriana Fazio. And basically, no, thank goodness for the Internet, because I was able to look at old interviews I had done NBC was incredibly generous about letting, you know, sending me old interviews and appearances. And then, um, you know, I luckily am a pack rat. So I got to go through speeches I had given, letters I had written, letters people had written me really uh, more accurately. And so I just kind of decided what moments of my life I wanted to talk about and did an outline and Three years later, a book was born. Now, your method of handling tough things, you went through an awfully difficult time. And how did you battle grief? How do you describe that in the book? I really wanted to explain what it's like to go through the process of having someone you love be diagnosed with a terminal illness at a really young age, to have two children, one in five, to have it come totally out of the blue, to be desperate for you know, any kind of treatment or cure, and to also be on television every morning during this period of time, Cindy. So I wanted to kind of help people understand. And then the fact that I never really talked to Jay about, you know, the fact that he might not make it. And so... I take people through the entire process. So what you have said actually to me before was that the one thing you're most sad about is that you never actually had the opportunity to speak to Jay about that. Is that the truth? Yes, that's something that I regret. And I think that it's the hardest conversation you can possibly have 
because when someone you love is sick, you're so terrified, you're partially in denial, you're thinking you can fix it. And I think we never were able to face the fact that, you know, he, he may not live. And it was just too painful. And I think anyone who's dealing with the impending death of a loved one needs to have a conversation or maybe go someplace where someone could help facilitate a conversation. But who knows? Maybe Jay didn't want to have that conversation, Cindy, and I was following his lead. So it's hard to it's hard to navigate, as you know, losing someone you love and and how you should handle it. I think there's probably no right way because it's so difficult. Okay, now back to the career. You were on with so many wonderful people. Do you remember what was your highest, your best TV spot? I think, you know, at the height of the Today Show success, that was probably the most uh, exhilarating time for me professionally. Everything was clicking Matt and I had a great on-air chemistry. Jeff Zucker was very creative behind the scenes. We were just having such a good time, and the audience was really responding to us. So um, I think everybody at that show at that time felt like we were on top of the world, and in many ways we were. What about your screw-up? Did you not ever screw up? I mean, we all have screwed up. Yeah, of course I screwed up. I I botched some interviews. I, um, you know, I did a lot of things that probably I wish I could do again. In the book, I talk a lot about my screw-ups. I talk about doing an insensitive, insensitive interview with John and Elizabeth Edwards. After losing my husband to cancer, I should have been much more sensitive about Elizabeth wanting to campaign for her husband. And I think people thought I came across as sort of callous, which of course I never would have wanted. So that wasn't a very good interview. Um, But yes, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of mulligans in my career that I wish I could do over. But, you know, I think you learn as you go and you also understand that you're never going to be perfect. So, you know, I tried to learn from every experience and get better. But no matter how many interviews you've done, Cindy, as you well know, sometimes, you know, it doesn't click. And sometimes you don't do as good a job as you wish you had done. You've had a huge career. You're still having it. But what, thinking back now, would you have handled differently? Would you have jumped to CBS? Would you have done that? I think I would have jumped to CBS, but I think I would have changed the format gradually. I think Les Moonves brought me over there to really, you know, upend the traditional evening news format. But I think I did things too quickly, and I think it was enough of a shock to the system to have a woman in that role both internally and for the public. They weren't used to having an anchor who wore lipstick. And so I think I would have done it much more gradually. 
come in as a much more traditional anchor and then played with the format once people got used to seeing me in that role. I think the bad thing, too, was some of the people at CBS who weren't quite gracious enough. That might be part of it. That might have been part of it. Yeah, I think culturally, um, you know, a lot of people at CBS, they're they start their careers at CBS and they're in their careers at CBS. I think some of the people there, not all, but some were not super stoked to have an outsider kind of come in. I think they felt threatened. They felt probably yeah, I know. Yeah. implicitly yeah. Yeah. disrespected because I was told to change things and they didn't think things needed changing. It's the most traditional of all the networks. And I think it was hard for some people who were used to doing it. You know, they would say things like, that's not how we do things here. And I know, I know, I know, I know, you know, the drill. I know, you know, I started at WNBC locally with Matt Lauer. We were both together on the first day sharing the same makeup table. You then spent years with him. What is your feeling about Matt Lauer today? I think Matt has a lot of incredible qualities. He was so fun to work with, super professional, and a really nice guy as a colleague. Clearly, he did some things that were inappropriate and abused his power and damaged some people. I think he is both, um, you know, can be an incredibly nice guy, but also make some pretty bad mistakes. And so I'm very conflicted about Matt. Um, I think, you know, I enjoyed my time with him as a colleague, but I'm disappointed that he behaved the way he behaved with some underlings at NBC. Okay, so would you want to see him again? Would you call him? Would you want to have lunch with him? What's the ongoing? At some point, I think it would be maybe helpful for me to understand uh, where he is now and how he feels about what happened. Um, You know, I have a lot of fond memories of that, but... um, you know, I certainly would be willing to sit down and talk to him if that was something he'd want to do. Katie Couric, I love you. We love you. The audience loves you. But why you would do an interview with me in a moving car when you were going through a tunnel, I'm not exactly sure. So we didn't hear you. What's? It's a shame. We all want to hear you. Anyway, we love you to pieces. We hope to talk to you again soon when you're not driving. Love you. Katie Couric, Madam Adams, in and out. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. My friend Barbara Walters, in November 2001, she did an ABC TV sit-down with Vladimir Putin. She gave me the tape, and I'm only going to take a part of it. He said, Vladimir Putin, this is his quote, 
there are mixed feelings of guilt for any tragedy we go through. In 99, we were victims of a terrorist attack, an explosion of buildings in Moscow. Hundreds of innocent people died. There was the realization that Russia should be a strategic ally of the entire civilized community, including, certainly, the United States of America. If we want to be protected, we should be together. After September 11, it was a realization that Russia should be a strategic ally of the entire civilized community, including, certainly, the United States. September 11 opened our eyes to that. Yeah, okay, that's fine. I just wanted to say that. Now, there's another thing I want to tell you. America the Beautiful. Washington, George Washington, was the only president who didn't blame any previous administration for his troubles. Congress, the Senate, unpredictable. You never know what life-threatening problems they will do nothing about. Should Biden fall down and break his crown, Kamala's tumbling after with a food taster and an English teacher. Biden, he knows a lot. He just can't remember it. He stands on his record so nobody can see it. Do powerful interests control him? It's, quote, leave my family out of this. Also, reporters are warned not to discuss the man's advanced years. There is to be no mentioning he once had a pet dinosaur. These are more things I feel like mumbling, so I'm going to mumble some more. This is something that's brand new and nobody knows about it. Keiko Aoki, she brought us a new idea. Now, Keiko Aoki's name may not be familiar to you, but she is the widow of the Benihana dynasty's Rocky Aoki. He launched now a, what is chief... Sit, wait a minute, I can't read my own handwriting here. It, she She just launched this month a chef's cooking, a personal, private, luxury chef who preps Japanese meals for your home dinner parties. Takeout. More than takeout, the chef comes to your home and prepares the Japanese meal for you. Keiko says you pay a fixed price per person. It's as simple as ordering a taxi. Me, I don't see a meter sticking out of a rump. But listen, the idea is great. It's a professional chef for a dinner party from four to eight people. The new outline service provides different foods such as new American, Italian, Asian, Mediterranean, French, international, plant-based, vegetarian, and kosher, but definitely Japanese. 
A new comedy drama action movie is called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. It stars Zac Efron, Russell Crowe, Bill Murray. Supposedly, it's a legit story from a book by writer Joanna Malloy. It's about a Marine vet, age 26, who left New York City to schlep beer to his childhood buddies in Vietnam. Norman Lear just screened this for friends. And where did he screen it? Martha's Vineyard. And where in Martha's Vineyard? At the big, large home of the ex-Secretary of State one time, John Kerry, and his wife, Teresa Hines, who is of the Hines Ketchup Heinzes, and thus chair of Heinz Endowments and Heinz Philanthropies, and this house is huge. Kindly please understand that even the personal bathroom mirror where Kerry fluffs his tended pompadour was not near any single biter migrant. It is now on to possibly Delaware and how we can house the migrants on the beach, which is a great idea. It should be in front of Biden's rocking chair. Because this is Holy Week for the Jewish people, talks are on between, as you know, Israel and Gaza, but rules are the following cannot be brought into Jerusalem's Western Wall complex. The rules are you cannot bring in sharp tools, including those of an officiant at a bris. You cannot bring in balloons or pyrotechnics. No musical instruments, no alcohol, no doves to be released, no equipment for event production, no kind of signs of any sort, no animals other than guide dogs. The shofar, except during specific holidays, can also not be brought in. Listen, I take no sides. My side is the United States of America. I only ask that, since Washington is too busy to do anything actually for the people, like on poverty, lawlessness, homelessness, immigration, coronavirus, climate change, prison reform, infrastructure, jobs, the useless presidency, and vice presidency. So, are D.C.'s Oath Keepers too busy to handle Hunter Biden? I'm just asking. Okay, I'm coming to a close. Let me just tell you about a guy. New York's got all kinds of types. There was this guy who was nine-to-five sidewalk job is soliciting handouts. He stays on a corner with a blanket and a chair and a dog. And last week he was asked by someone, do you, do you need something? The weather is getting a little colder. He replied, yes, I need a sandwich. I want a turkey club. It actually cost $18. And the person went in and got it for him. And like takeout, they delivered the sandwich 
to this guy who was soliciting handouts. Listen to me. Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 